Welcome to another episode of Bleachers and Boards, brought to you by the Hoop Heads Podcast. I'm Marlon Guild, and along with my co-host Matt Collier, we'll analyze everything from hoops to hip-hop. Check us out. Hey, Hoopheads, we appreciate you listening to this episode of Bleachers and Boards with Matt Collier and Marlon Guild. Be sure to check out these other coaching-focused podcasts, Thrive with Trevor Huffman, Beyond the Ball, the CoachMaze.com podcast, and Players Court. Plus, our NBA pods on the Hoopheads Podcast Network, including Cavalier Central, Blazing the Path, Grizz and Grind, 305 Culture, Knuck If You Buck, Hashtag Lakers, Motor City Hoops, Spanning the Spurs, X's and O's NBA Breakdown, and the LA Hoops Pod. Oh, and don't forget to check out our flagship, the Hoop Heads Podcast, hosted by me, Mike Cleansing, and my co-host, Jason Suckle, featuring the best minds in the game, from grassroots to the NBA. Welcome to another episode of Beaches and Boards. I'm Marlon Guild along with my co-host, Matt Collier. Matt, I-, I missed you, man. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a little while. How was your holiday? It was cool. You know, with, with this quarantine thing, well, not even quarantine, man, just with trying to play games, you know, yeah. everybody's just trying to stay as safe as possible. So Absolutely. we practiced, and I just stayed in the house, man, to be honest with you. Um, trying to get to some games, man. Okay. Um, as okay. practices and – Trying to get there, so okay. We're back here, though, man. And and, yeah, nice. Good, good, good to be back. Took a little break, but now we're right back at it. Yeah, yeah. And this one, I'm not going to lie. I look forward to all the episodes. This one, I've been looking forward to for the last month. uh, After picking up this gentleman's book, uh, the Knicks of the '90s. It's a great read. Uh, If you need it as a Stocking stuff for the holidays, I advise you do so, especially if you're a Knicks fan like myself. Um, but we have the author of that book, Mr. Paul Nepper. Paul, thanks for coming on, man. Sure. Thanks, Marlon. Thanks, Matt, for having me on. Looking forward Welcome. to it. Welcome to Bleachers and Boards. Um, Thank this, you. This is great. Um, you know, like I said, Matt, the, the crazy part about I had no idea that this book was even coming out. And one night I'm just on the computer and I see an article in the New York Post about, actually it's, it's two books. One was a book about the Knicks and the other one was a book about MSG uh, by Harvey uh, Aratron. Hopefully I'm pronouncing his name right. And once I saw this Knicks of the 90s book, I searched everywhere, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, you know, Barnes and Noble had copies, but it would take a while to be mailed to you. Amazon charged me an arm and a leg, but I didn't care. Uh, I, I got it there, and it took me about four days to read the book. I relived a lot of memories growing up as a kid in New York City. Um, that I just reached out to Paul on social media, and you know we, we struck up a relationship. And a couple weeks later, he's heading out, hanging out with us, man. So awesome! That's awesome. Well, that must mean that Paul got some good checks coming because the, the book part, <laughs> book's hard to find and, you know, the, it's sold out because you couldn't find it and then they're jacking the price up because it's a hot commodity. So that means Paul's doing all right. That's a good thing. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul, before we get into this, man, uh, just tell our listeners and our viewers a little bit about yourself uh, and then we'll get into it, man. Yeah, all right. Uh, I'm, so I, I grew up, I was born in Queens, uh, Douglaston. Okay. Lived there until I was about eight, uh, and then moved out to Long Island. Um, and I, I, you know, I grew up on the Knicks, huge Knicks fan. I, I really go back to, uh, I really got into them like in the Patino days when Patino was there, and like so, like you know, eighty seven. He was there like eighty seven to eighty nine. That's when I got really into them. And uh, uh, I'm actually a lawyer by trade. I've practiced law for a number of years, and I'm moving away from that now. Uh, while the, for a few years, I did some uh, writing for Bleacher Report on the side covering the Knicks. And uh, 
Yeah, man. You know, I like a lot of Nick fans, Marlon. You could attest to this. Like, we, like we 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 think about the '90s Knicks more than we should because, like, because the last 20 years have been miserable. <laughs> so there's, you know, I, we all love those teams when we're going through it, and I think with the passage of time, we we've come to love and appreciate them even more because we haven't had good basketball in so long. Right. And so I was I was thinking about the nineties Knicks ones one day and how much I love those teams and I and I thought somebody should really write a book about them and, and I thought, why not me? Let me give it a go. So uh you know, lots of reading and research and interviews later and here we are. I, I have a book. Right. Right. Now what would you say was the skeleton for this book? Obviously now being a Knicks fan from, you know, the late eighties uh, like you said, watching Coach Patino, which I got to see him two times a year now. Um, and then, That's right. That's right. Yeah. Transitioning into the, the 90s, you know, what was the skeleton for you in putting this together? And, you know, you and I have spoken numerous times j- just about this, but just touch on the first steps you took in putting this book together. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, I had to, the first thing was kind of narrowing down, all right, exactly what exactly, what period exactly do I want to cover? You know, I thought about uh, doing kind of Patrick's whole career. So, you know, like his whole career with the Knicks. Um, But I felt, you know, I felt like they really took off when Riley got there. Uh, So that became the starting point for me. Uh, For a little bit, I toyed with the idea of doing just the Riley years, uh, just those four years because they were so intense and they were so good in that period. Um, but there was so much great stuff in the late 90s too. You know, you had the, 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 the rivalry with the Heat and all those brawls. And, of course, they had that crazy run in 99 when they went to the finals again. Um, and a lot of good characters in the late 90s with Larry Johnson and Alan Houston and, you know, Heisman Trophy winner Charlie Ward and, and – uh, and of course, Spreewell when he got there. Um, and so I kind of decided I'd go through the whole decade and, and kind of made it from when Riley got there until Van Gundy left pretty much became the book. Right, right. And you know what? We had uh, Terrence Rencher uh, on here on one of our previous episodes. Um, Terrence is, is a New York City legend. I'm, I'm sure you, you've heard of the name. Yeah, sure. But he played on the Miami Heat in Pat Riley's first game back. Uh, really? As the Heat coach. And we spoke with them about that. And, you know, you touch on it in the book that the persona that Pat Riley took on, we had never really seen that in New York, right? You know, and when he left, a lot of times as fans, we get upset because, especially as New York fans, and as Nick fans, which Matt's not a Knicks fan, but it's okay. Uh, it, it's almost, why are you leaving us? And that right. feeling at the Garden that night when Pat Riley came back, of uh, why'd you leave us? So now we're upset. Uh, so we're just going to boo you every time we get a chance, right? And, and luckily, that was 95. Knicks ended up winning that game, but Let's uh let's just backtrack to when, you know the, I guess the call to acquisition of of Pat Riley, you know leaving him leaving the NBC booth to take over the Knicks job. Would you find out were the reasons that he wanted to come back? Because I'm sure there were other teams that were trying to, you know, inquire about him. But what drew him to New York from what you found out? Yeah, I mean he. It was really, it seemed like very soon after he left the Lakers, he, he, ha, he, he knew he wanted to get back into coaching soon. You know, he, he only took that one year off when, as you said, he was at NBC. Um, and, and from very early on, very soon after he left the Lakers, he had his sights set on New York. He was, Riley's, he was big time. He was Hollywood. And he loved that spotlight. He loved it. And I think um, a lot of it was the market. You know, the New York was the media capital of the world. And I think he saw it as uh, a challenge um, in that, you know, the Knicks had, they'd been through six different coaches in the last five years. It was a lot of turnover, a lot of turmoil, and, and the, the, the franchise was kind of lost. 
And I think, um, I think he saw it as an opportunity to kind of bring glory back to New York and, and what better place to win than in New York. I think it also helped that he had a, he had a relationship with Dave Checkets, who had just become the new president of the team. Checkets was working for the NBA league office for a while before that. And he had struck up a friendship with Riley from that. So I think that helped as well. Plus, you know, he looked, he's like, I have a star player in Patrick Ewing and he liked some of the other pieces. He liked Mark Jackson a lot, actually. He thought Oakley was a guy he could work with. And so, you know, it wasn't, you know, the Knicks, they were a decent team, but it, w- it wasn't going to be like a full rebuild, you know, that kind of thing. He could come in and he thought he could win pretty quickly and win in a big market with a lot of media attention, and that appealed to him. No, for, for sure. And I thought that was definitely the case. Uh, now I'm going to show my age to our listeners here. Uh, I had to be around eight or nine years old when uh, Pat Riley got here. And I remembered, you know, the Mark Jackson, Gerald Wilkins backcourt, and then bringing in Xavier McDaniel, who we thought brought another kind of toughness that Oakley didn't have. But if you combine them, you've got something that you're three and you're four, and then obviously Patrick Ewing. And that run lasted two years, right? So now we get to 92, 93, and this is when it's time to – make their run, so to speak, right? You know, Chicago's the top team. Uh, man, I hate to do this to you. Charles Barkley was not in a good place uh, for our listeners. Matt's a big Charles Barkley fan, so. Which, which year are you referring to? 92, 93. So I'm, I'm going to say. He wasn't in. He wasn't in. He, 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 I'm going to segue into that, see? But I, I, knew what you, <laughs> I, knew what, I knew what you were trying to do. I was just talking about the Knicks, 92-93. This is their year, right? Mm-hmm. They're going up against the Bulls. Mm-hmm. Charles Barkley, who's a good player at the time. See, I'm trying to give you some love here. No, 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 no. Hold on. A good player. Okay. Hey, Paul, this is what we do. Here, here we go. Here. A good player. He was the leading scorer at the Olympics, and then he was the MVP in 92-93. What do you mean a good player? But, but see, I'm talking about – see, you didn't let me finish. <laughs> a good player. <laughs> This is, leading up. this is leading up into the 92 I gotta, I got to go with Matt on this one. I mean, a good player is, like, you know, like, like Gerald, Wilkins was, Gerald Wilkins was a good player, you know. Dan Marley was a good player. Charles Barkley was the MVP of the league. Well, no, I didn't, I didn't get to that. I said we're going into the 92-93 season when – Paul, you see what I have to deal with on – you see what I have to deal with on the week? That's why I need to break <laughs> no, 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 what I'm saying is Charles making the transition from the Sixers to the Suns. So that took the Sixers out of the equation, right? So now it's really just the Knicks and the Bulls and maybe the Cavaliers d- during that time, right? But now Pat Riley's looking at it. This is why I came here, right? Now, it, it broke my heart that they got rid of Mark Jackson, that, that was a tough one for me. That and Rod Strickland are the two toughest ones that, you know, I, I still live with. But going into that year, you know, Riley's got his guys. They bring in Doc Rivers. They bring in uh, Charles Smith. I won't say what your I Your boy. That's your boy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my friends and my family know what I call Charles Smith, so I won't say it. Uh, but this is finally our year, right? Uh Paul, just out of just talk about that year, that ninety two, ninety three year, just from the people that you've spoken to. What did everybody feel about that year? Yeah, well, going back a year, you know, in ninety one, ninety two, the Knicks took the Bulls to seven. That's right. You know, people always people always say, you know, Michael never went to seven games in the finals. That's true, but the Knicks took him to seven in earlier round. Yeah. Um, and so, and you know, that was first. That was Riley's first year there. So there was a there was a feeling that hey, like, all right. This is Riley's second year now. Some of the younger guys like Starks and Mason and Greg Anthony are going to even be even better. We got some good playoff experience going to seven with the Bulls. Like, we're ready. And then, of course, that season, the Knicks were the number one seed. They won, they won as we talked about before we came on the air, the Knicks won 60 games that year. They had a better record than the Bulls. Um, so they felt really good about that team. 
the guys, you know, I talked to guys. Uh, Jeff Van Gundy told me that's the best team the Knicks had in all the years he was there. Better than the team that went to the finals the next year. And some of the other guys said that as well. They thought that team was playing even better than the team that went to the finals in 94. Wow. So they, they all, to a man, thought that was that team, that, that, their year. They thought that was the team. And then they, they, of course, faced the Bulls in the conference finals, and they won the first two games. Games two, game two was the memorable, the memorable John Starks dunk. Yeah. So the Knicks went up 2-0. Uh, the Bulls, of course, came back and won the next two. And then game five was, as people refer to it, was the, the Charles Smith game. And the Knicks were down one, and, and Charles got rejected four times in about five seconds in the closing seconds of the game. And the Knicks lost. And, you know, they, they were absolutely devastated by that. You know, guys were in tears. Uh, I, Doc Rivers compared it to, he said it was like the, the death of a family member who would co- be completely healthy. You know, the sudden death of a family member. They were devastated by that. And, you know, if, if they had won that game, the Knicks had home court. You're looking at a potential game seven at the Garden. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, uh, it's crazy when you talk to some of these guys. Twenty five years later, I talked to them, and it still hurts. It yeah. still hurts, you know. Um, so yeah, and then I, you know, the next year Michael was gone, and of course the Knicks went to the finals. And I think, you know, of course, you know, they wanted to win it desperately. You want to win the championship, um, but I, I think all to a man, I, you know, they weren't happy when Jordan retired. You know, they were dead set on beating him. They felt like they were the better team in 93 and that they fell just short. And uh, so that was for the, for that group of guys was kind of their last best shot at, at Michael mm-hmm. before he went away and played baseball. Now, you know what? I, I have a question here and then I'm actually going to segue to Matt. I've always wondered this. If Xavier McDaniel stays on that 92, 93 team, do the Knicks get over the hump? Because now, now, People forget that he left a couple of days before training camp to sign with the Boston Celtics, knowing that the Knicks just had to give a, a fair contract. What, what's your take on that? If he stays, does that get them over the hump, you think? It, you know, I talked to X, and he sure thinks it. He thinks he would have been the difference. <laughs> uh, you know, he told me, he goes, you, you know, you blocked my shot once, the next time I'm going to tear the effing rim down. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, maybe it's so it's so hard to say, you know, I think there's a, a real chance. Yeah. He he gave the Bulls fits the year before. He he really um, he really got in Scotty's head right. uh, and he played great in that series. And he told me he's like, look, man, he's like the NBA. I mean, you guys know the NBA is a game of matchups. Right. And he right. said, for whatever reason, I matched up really well against Scotty. He felt that. He had the athleticism, not Scotty's athleticism, but he had the athleticism to keep up with him. And he felt that his strength really bothered Scotty. You know, most threes, you know, X was a really physical, really tough for a three man. Right. Most threes don't back you down and, and punish you in the post like he could. And right. that bothered Scotty. And X told me, he was like, look, he's, a, he's like, you know, James Worthy kicked my butt. Mark Aguirre kicked my butt. Those were two guys that he goes, they were just terrible matchups for me for whatever reason. But he felt Scotty was a, a really good matchup for him. And he proved it the year earlier in the playoffs. So, you know, it's in addition to that, you know, we focus on the Charles Smith play, but that series was so close. And, and yeah, X might have made the difference. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's a tough one. We'll never know. We'll we'll never know. But I'm going to tell you one thing that I do know. I think the Knicks get past the Bulls in 93. They beat the Suns. Now, hear me out. And I know Matt's raising his eyebrows. Our our listeners can't see this, but our viewers can. He's rubbing his hands together. He's looking like Birdman. So he's going to (laughs) – He's looking like Birdman. (laughs) (laughs) And and here's why why I think that. I'm not going to take anything away from Phoenix that year. They had the best record in the NBA. They got through a tough game seven against the Sonics. I just think the momentum that the Knicks would have had 
beating the Bulls, knowing that that was David versus Goliath. That was, you know, that was the bully that they couldn't knock out, and they finally got that bully down. The momentum would have taken them into Phoenix, into that Phoenix series, and they could have done some things. Matt, how do you feel about that? Um, that that's a good – that's a valid point. I'm not going to take away from the uh, – validity of that statement that um, the Bull, you know, the, I'm sorry, the Knicks would have been coming in off a high. They would have been the first team, you know, since the Pistons, obviously, to knock Jordan off. And that would have shifted a lot of dynamics, you know, just going forward, right, in history. If they would have been able to pull that off, that would have been monumental. So I think they would have been um, – they would have been coming in on a high and, and playing well and, and all of that. But as we all know, the basketball is a game. At the end of the day, it comes down to players. Oh, here and we, here we and go. Um, the reality is that how many times have we seen an NBA Finals where it not saying never happens, but where the best player doesn't win? It happens most of the time. When the best player, the best player on the better on the better team, they usually win. And Charles Barkley was the best player in the NBA for the last couple of years. I'm not taking away from Jordan. Obviously, Jordan was, you know, Michael Jordan. But Charles Barkley was playing at an unbelievable level at that point. And so, yes, the Knicks would have been coming in off a high, playing, you know, beating the, beating the almighty Bulls. That would have been great. But at the end of the day, the Suns had the best player in the world, on, not excluding Michael Jordan. They had the next best player in the world at that time playing. And he was playing at a very high level and he would have carried the Suns to a victory. They got in his ring, and Shaq wouldn't be able to say anything to him on inside the NBA right now if that happened. So that's how I feel about it. Okay. I'm going to give you two words. And, Paul, I would love for you to follow up with this, with a meeting that you touch on that is in the book, The Knicks of the 90s, Charles Oakley. And what about can, and, and you can say what you want about Charles Oakley's playing career, Guys were scared of him. Not when, Charles Barkley. Paul, can you please tell the story uh, without giving it too much? I, I want the listeners. <laughs> I'm, Paul's going to give you a, a brief detail on why Charles Barkley was scared of him. Paul, Paul. All right. Well, I will say there, there was a long history between those two, and they had a yeah. number of on-the-court fights going yeah. back to the 80s. Uh, mm-hmm. There were a number of – there were punches thrown. There were a number of battles. They didn't like each other. Mm-hmm. The big story is uh, it's, it's, the, it's 19, 1999. You had the lockout in the 98-99 season. Mm-hmm. And basically and Oakley got traded to the Raptors for Marcus Camby right before that lockout. Right. And during the lockout, the, the players, a bunch of the players got together and had like a, a charity basketball game, basically. Um, and Barkley spouted off about Oakley. Uh, he, bas- he said he felt the Raptors got uh, – the Knicks got the better end of that trade. And he said – he said something – I don't remember the exact quote, but something to the effect that about Oakley, if, you know, everybody says he always pl- – he plays so hard. He said if the best thing you – you can say about a guy as he plays hard, he must but he must not be that good a player. That's true, but keep going. And so uh <laughs> so anyway, that they have the lockout. The lockout comes to an end. The players association reaches an agreement with, with the NBA, but then all the players have to vote on the agreement and approve the agreement. So they all get together at the I believe it was the Chrysler building in New York mm-hmm. and Barkley's there, and Oak walks in and walks right up to Barkley and smacks him across the face really mm-hmm. hard. Oak, Barkley sticks out his hand to shake his hand, and Oakley smacks him across the face and says, don't ever, you know, keep my name out of your mouth, basically. Mm-hmm. And Barkley ran away. It was never seen from again that day. So if that was 99, could you only imagine? That's the story. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, right. was Barkley right. scared of I don't know that Barkley I wouldn't say Barkley was scared of Oakley. I don't think he was scared of him. I think he I think he was embarrassed by what sure. happened. Okay. Sure. Um but he stuck his hand out and he slapped him. Okay. Yeah. But but at that time, like you knew that Oak was the enforcer. And every team needs oh. an enforcer. Time out, time out, time out, time out, time out. 
What? What? Paul, Paul, Paul. What? What year did you say that that happened? This was ninety. That happened ninety nine. That happened in. So what does that have to do with nineteen ninety three? You can only imagine what he was doing six years prior. No, 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 no. Because I have footage of Charles Barkley slapping, um, Char- slapping Charles Oakley in the face. Also, I have. We had. There's footage of that. We can pull up on YouTube if we want to share screens. We can pull, pull that up. Love him. Throwing yeah. punches, throwing, and probably now that was 1999. When did the brawl happen? Um, so that was right before the. I'm trying to remember the context. Was that before, or after they got into the fight in the exhibition game when Barkley was in Houston, his first game? That was after, I believe. It was after. So the lockout happened following that. So, yeah. so we're just going to ignore the fact when 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 he when Charles Oakley slammed him on his back because he was always jealous of him because he was better than him. And so he slams him on his back in an exhibition game, and then Charles Barkley comes up, comes up swinging, right? And then he tried to meet him in the back of the, um, of the Rockets arena. We'll just, we'll just conveniently leave that part out, right, Marlon? So the whole thing about him being scared of him, number one, is a joke. Number two, again, we're talking about 93 versus 99. And 93, there's nothing – first of all, when Charles Oakley was playing against Charles Bar, I, I wish I had the numbers, and I, I, I apologize to the listeners. I didn't know we were going down this aisle. This was a sneak attack by Marlon. That's <laughs> fine, right? I didn't know we were going down this because I would have become prepared, and I probably would have dug all the way into the research of what Charles Barkley re- rebounding and scoring average averages were every time he played against Charles Oakley but I know from as a fan every time I watched the game it was an easy 25 and 12 pretty much every game sometimes he'd go for 30 he never had any problems with Charles Oakley who's supposed to be this great defensive player he 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 treated him like he treated everybody else he got above his average against him he used to talk crap to him during the game telling him he couldn't guard him so this whole him being afraid of afraid of him and he was going to shut him down in the finals is so it, it, it's it's laughable it wouldn't have happened it wouldn't right. have happened all right so we're, we're going that, thank you for that part that story paul that's very interesting um you know information i hadn't heard that story um i'm not i believe sure if if you say it happened it happened that's fine, but Charles Oakley slowing down Charles Barkley on the court, not happening. All right, we, we, we're not we're not going going further into it. I'm just giving you my opinion. That, yeah, no, that was a good setup. You see how you see the you see the flow of the show, right, Paul? That was, I do. That was fine. I yeah, do. Fine. And I think you know what? I think I think it would have been a great series. I think you. I think Matt's right. I think it probably would have gone seven. You know, the Knicks, I think the Knicks were the better defensive team overall. The, the Phoenix was definitely the better offensive team. I think Matt makes a great point. Charles, Charles would have been the best player on the floor. Mm-hmm. Oh, Oakley, that is. So, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Barkley, Barkley would have been the best player on the floor. And, and you know, it's a shame, Matt. I, I don't think uh, – I think KJ is one of those guys that's a little lost to history. I don't think people – I don't think, like, you know, younger fans know what a great ball player Kevin Johnson was. Yeah, you know, he, was, he didn't – He played he play really bad in that, in that finals. That was part – I mean, obviously, the Nick, you know, the Bulls had Michael Jordan. That, that played a, a big role in it. But Kevin Johnson did not play well in those, um, in those finals, and that was a little bit of the reason why, um, you know, the series when it did besides, you know, Michael Jordan. Um, we won't get into – Danny Ainge going to double team Horace Grant on the block and leaving John Paxson open for it. We won't get into that. Um, hey, uh, hey, this uh, is about the Knicks of the night. That's right. <laughs> it is, it is, it is, it is. We, we won't go down. I, I respect it. I respect it. We won't go down that road. Hey, hoop heads. We all hate ankle sprains, and they happen way too often. Ankle injuries are the number one sports-related injury. Arise is trying to change that. With the iFast, your athletes get preventative protection and full mobility. Athletes no longer need to wear bulky braces that limit performance and give mediocre protection. Anyone playing sports should be using these products. Keep your athletes in the game. Don't wait for them to get hurt to take action. Visit www.arise.com. Spelled A-R-Y-S-E. And use the code HOOPHEADS to get 20% off the future of performance. That's A-R-Y-S-E dot com with promo code HOOPHEADS to get 20% off. 
Now we transition from the Pat Riley era to the Jeff Van Gundy era. And one of the things that I noticed was being a coach, the style of play, right? So everything with Pat Riley was, you know, throw it in to Patrick Ewing. Patrick, you make the play. Uh, and now you transition into Jeff Van Gundy where he's got more options now. You, you know, I, I will say that you have uh, budding two-guard superstar, well, not superstar, star, right, in, in Allen Houston, um, who at that time, if I'm not mistaken, 96, 97, was one of the top priorities for a lot of teams in free agency, if, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Larry Johnson, you know, had been acquired via trade. So now you've got more scoring options. Uh, but yet the defensive intensity remained the same. Uh Without giving too much, how did that transition go for, for the players during that time from Pat Riley to Van Gundy? I, and I'm not going to talk about Don Nelson. We're just going <laughs> to go Pat Riley to Jeff Van Gundy. The Don Nelson years to me are – and it wasn't even that long. I, I forgot about it. Yeah. I, th I think Nelly was important for the only reason that – and he wasn't even there for a full season. Right. But he changed things dramatically, and it pissed all of them off. They didn't like it. And so they were all excited to play for Van Gundy, and Van Gundy really brought back a lot of the, the Riley mentality and the defensive emphasis and the hard work and all that. And so I, in a weird way, I think having Nelly there actually helped Van Gundy because mm -hmm. uh, it it, he was like a return to normalcy for them. Got um, but, yeah, they, they still had the same defensive principles in place. You know, they still had the same no layup rule. Uh, it was every, every year the first day of training camp was they didn't, they didn't pick up a basketball. It was all defense all day. Um, so that was still – that was the first emphasis. And, uh, I'm, you know, and as people may not know, Tom Thibodeau was part of that staff, was part of Van Gundy's staff. And, you know, hopefully, you know, he could bring back some of that focus on defense but it was it was very much defense first and as as you said Marlon uh as you said Marlon like the offense opened up a little bit he's they still had they still ran a lot of the same plays that Riley ran in fact they had the same names he didn't even change the names of the plays that's why those heat Knicks series were so crazy because they were running the same actions at each other it was like it was like another day in practice um but he did Houston Houston gave them, as you noted, a dimension they never had before, which was that that knockdown shooter. You know, Starks was very streaky. Ideally, I think more suited for a six-man role, which he became when Allen got there. And so Allen added a new dimension. And I think the game was starting to – I mean, the NBA, it's like, a, it's like a different sport now, right, the way they play compared to the way they played then. And that didn't happen overnight. I think the late 90s, they were starting. It was starting to move a little more towards the perimeter, not as, you know, big man dominated. Um, and so, yeah, uh, Van Gundy started – he would play Houston and Starks together some of the time to get more shooting on the floor around Patrick. Mm -hmm. So, in that sense, I think there was a little more uh, – the offense became a little more perimeter-oriented. Uh, while maintaining that same defensive mentality. Right, right. And, you know, I'll tell you what's crazy. So, I'm watching Nick games now. And before I got to Ryder, I was at St. Peter's University with Coach John Dunn, who was a big-time defensive coach. So, we would do things like stun off the passer. If a shooter's coming off a down screen, he's going to chase the guy that's guarding – the big that's setting the down screen, he's got to show. The guy that's guarding the ball has to show. And I'm writing things down, and I'm like, the Knicks are doing the same stuff we did at St. Peter's. So I reach out to Coach Dunn. Say, Coach, the Knicks of the 90s do the same stuff we do. And, you know, as coaches, we get stuff from everybody, right? Nothing's original. I had to do my research. Coach Dunn worked for Steve Clifford, who was actually really? a Knicks assistant and a Knicks scout in the early 2000s. Yeah. And I'm like, 
you know, this, so, you know, I start guessing, well, am I part of the next tree? Because I'm yeah. <laughs> there you go. You know, so everything that they did defensively, we did. And I thought about it my first day at St. Peter's. Coach Dunn brings me in. You know, we go through the things you got to do with HR. And he says, hey, watch this tape. This is what we do defensively. It's a Jeff Van Gundy defensive edit. It's about really? five minutes long. Uh, for our listeners and our viewers, if you can go to YouTube, it's on YouTube. You type in Jeff Van Gundy defensive edit, you will see it on there. Everything that they did, we did. And like I said, I, I knew he had worked for Steve Clifford. I just didn't know that Steve Clifford was with the Knicks during that time. So um, it, it was – Great stuff. Um, now, Paul, I, I guess now we're putting this together. You know, I, I know you interviewed a lot of people. Um, yeah. Who was the hardest person to get? I guess I'll start with that one first. And uh, who are you most excited to get? Um, I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the two guys I didn't get that were, it were just really hard and I weren't, wasn't able to get them were Riley and Ewing. And, and both of those were disappointing. And I knew going in, they would be a long shot, especially Riley. Riley really doesn't do one-on-one -on -one interviews anymore. Um, as, as far as I found over the last eight to 10 years, he's done two, both of them with, with Dan Lebertard of ESPN. He just doesn't, just doesn't do it. Um, Ewing, I thought, you know, I tried a number of different angles. I was a little more optimistic. Um, the feedback I got is Patrick is – is very guarded and tends to talk with guys he's known for a long time. Right. Um, out now he's like, you know, he has to do his things with the Georgetown press, but outside of that, he, he tends to stick with people he's known for a long time. I talked to his college, his high school coach, Mike Jarvis, and Jarvis reached out to him for me. I thought that might get it done, but didn't happen. Um, so those, those were two disappointments that I couldn't get. Um, Opie was really thrilling because he's a guy who I was pursuing for years. You know, obviously he was a major part of those teams and I tried him through so many different angles and just couldn't get a hold of him. And when I finally did, uh, that was really exciting just because of, of the, the effort and time that had gone into it. Um, that was really cool. Uh, and then Van Gundy was great because, um, again, he was so important. He was there for all of it. You know, he was assistant during, during the whole Riley years, before Riley got there even. And then, uh, of course, was the head coach himself. Um, so he was a really important guy that – he was great too because he's so intelligent, you know, about – obviously about the game of basketball. He, and, and, uh, and, and he's a very good communicator. You know, I, and I think that's why he's he's been a successful broadcaster for so many years now, you know. And so he told me some great stories and he uh, and he really, you know, some of it, he, we got into X's and O's a little bit. Um, but some of it was just uh, stories about this guy or that guy or about, you know, what uh, what happened before a game or after a game and how they felt and the player reactions and all that stuff. So he was a great, great guy to talk to. But no, for sure, for sure. And for our listeners and viewers, I won't give it up. There's a great connection between Jeff Van Gundy and Bill Parcells that you must check out. I'm not going to give it uh, to you. You have to go get the Knicks of the 90s to go see what it is I'm talking about. Um, now, that's actually going to segue into my next question. What was probably the most interesting story that you heard that you may not have known that once you heard it, I got to find out more. If, if there, if there's any, or if you can just give. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was told a story about, you know, everybody I talked to about a Charles Oakley story, everybody. <laughs> and there were, so there were a bunch of those. And, uh, I talked to, uh, uh, Steve Masiello, I don't know if you know who he is. He's the, he's the head coach at Manhattan now. 
I have to see Steve Massiello two times a year as well. That's right, of course. So Mass was, I don't know if you know this, but he was a ball boy for the Knicks in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, And so I talked to him, and uh, he was great, really nice, very helpful. And he kind of just, you know, in passing, talked about the time that Charles Oakley got in a a brawl with Sidney Green on the team flight. I'm like, on a team flight? He's like, yeah. So I had to dig into that. I got it. I, you know, I got, actually got the lowdown on that from uh, Kenny Walker. You remember Kenny Walker? Skywalker. Kenny yeah. Skywalker. Uh, he gave me the lowdown on that story, that the, the brawl of, on, with uh, Oakley and Sidney Green on a team flight, which was just crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other story that I love that um, I talked to this guy, Dick Butera who was – he's a real estate guy in Colorado, but he's very good friends with Pat Riley. He actually negotiated Riley's deal with Miami when Riley left for Miami. Right. And Butera hung out with Riley the day of game seven of the 94 finals. <clears throat> and, like, in his hotel room, I think it was the Ritz-Carlton in Houston, and they hung out in the room all day just talking. It's time to go to the game, and they're standing there waiting for the elevator to go down to the lobby. And Riley says to Butera – well, buddy, I know three guys who are going to show up tonight. And Butera said, who? He said, me, you, and John. And the John he was talking about was John Stark. And that blew my mind because, of course, John Stark shot two for 18 that night. Mm-hmm. And here was, here was Riley saying he's the one guy, not Patrick Ewing, not Oakley, not Harper. Starks was the one guy he was sure was going to show up that night. And he, and he shot two for 18. And I just couldn't believe that. I couldn't believe he said that. It was wrong about that one. Yeah, he sure was. And it goes I, to his I, mindset. It goes to his mindset too, you know, because a lot of people are like, why didn't he put? Why didn't he take Starks out? Would he? Why didn't he put Will Blackman or Hubert Davis in? Hmm. And I think it because he believed in him that much, you know, that he just he 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 believed eventually he was going to start hitting. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, that that was the same day as the uh, um, the OJ chase, right? Same game. The OJ was game five. That was in the same game as Starks going with the uh, – The two for 18, yeah. Okay. No, so it's two for 18 was game seven. The OJ chase was game five, yeah. Hey, you know, I was so upset about that because – Because they had y'all with the little box at the top of the screen. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a major story going on. <laughs> A major story. Actually, it's not funny what happened, but um, but yeah, that was a major, that was a that was a huge deal. They had y'all with the in the little um, what did they call picture and picture box? Picture, picture, yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and you know what, Matt? You know what? They it was either they had the box periodically, but then I found this out years later, and I hope my mom was lying to me because she's gonna hear this, and if she was, I'm gonna be so upset. She said they replayed the game at midnight on NBC, but I fell asleep. Yeah, I, I remember that. I just remember. I just remember watching the game, and then they cut to it, and you were just like, "Oh my god, <laughs> what what uh, is going on? This uh, is crazy." Yeah, man. Um, but nah, it, it it was good times. Um, you know, the nineties. You know, for me was was everything. Uh, and with this book, it, it brought me back to that, right? Of why I, I love the game of basketball and, and why I became a coach. Um, Matt, it was, you know, after hearing these Charles Barkley stories in this book, you probably didn't want to become a coach after this, but somehow you did. So I'm happy. Uh, um, yeah, watching watching greatness, watching one of the best players ever. You know, that 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 inspired me. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul, I have another question um, for you. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned the um, the disappointment of the um, the Knicks um, after losing to uh, the Bulls. You said that they were you know really devastated and they felt like you know the Doc Rivers quote it was like losing a family member all of a sudden. Did you get the impression that that was more um, devastating? Like, which, which did you feel was more devastating when guys told the story—the the Bulls loss or the um, the uh, the Pacers loss with uh, Reggie Miller? Definitely the Bulls loss. Okay. 
Definitely the Bulls lost, yeah. Uh, because it's because, painful. Yeah. And if you, yeah. Well, here's the thing. So the, the, the Reggie Miller, the Reggie Miller lot was, that was a game one of the series. Well, yeah, game, but I just, just the series overall because. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, because it was devastating too. But so game yeah. seven of that, of that series, I don't know if you remember, Patrick missed the finger roll mm-hmm. at the yep. buzzer of game yep. seven of that series. It was a devastating series. Yep. I think the difference is, you know, that 95 team was very good, but I don't, I don't, they weren't arguably the best team in the league. You know, they weren't quite on the level that 93 team. I don't think like those, 93, those guys believed they were winning a championship. They really believed that. I'm not sure they believed that in 95, you know, the 95, you know, 93 had happened in the conference finals, 94. By 95 was the second round. They, they would have had to face Orlando in the, in the right. conference finals, and that Orlando team was a beast. So right. I think they weren't quite as good and, and weren't quite as confident, and, and so consequently weren't quite as devastated. Gotcha. Yeah, now I remember that. Like um, you know, it's been uh, mentioned here. I, I wasn't a Knicks fan, but a lot of my friends were, and I just I do remember that in '93 they felt, especially like you said after the '92 year, they thought '93. Okay, now this is it. We got them. We got them figured out. We're better than the Bulls this year. We have a better right. They, they def there definitely was that um that sentiment that um you know, that that was their year and then it didn't happen. And you know that so the Knicks fans I knew they were devastated by that, but like you said, in a different way, the Pacers wasn't the finals, but I almost, but that was the year after they lost to, um, um, they lost in the front. Yeah. They lost in Houston. So they felt, okay, we're, you know, we're going to go back. And I think that, you know, at least the Knicks fans that I knew felt like they had more experience on the, um, on the, the magic, even though the magic were playing well, that they, and they, they was almost like they were looking past Indiana. And they thought, you know, okay, we'll just get past Indiana, then we'll duke it out with with the Magic, and we'll get back to the finals. And you know, the Nick Killer got him, and it was <laughs> it was so dramatic that I think, you know, that you know, at least from a fan's perspective, that you know, they were hurt by that one too. Oh yeah, I, I don't mean I don't mean yeah. to minimize it. I mean yeah. they were they were pretty crushed after that too. Yeah. yeah. Now and you know what? Before we wrap, I'm actually going to give a story on that Patrick Ewan layup. My dad and I, we were fixing a window uh, in our apartment in Brooklyn. And if you remember correctly, Patrick caught the ball right inside the top of the key. And mm-hmm. one of the Davis brothers gambled and tried to steal it. Or it was, it was Rick Smith, I'm sorry. Tried to gamble and steal it, which gave Patrick the lane. Middle. Gave him the lane. And he went to lay it up. And if I'm not mistaken, one, he was too far. But now I think like one of the Davis brothers, uh, and they're not really brothers, but that's one, I'll say one of the Davis boys may have been in the way. And I'm probably flip-flopping my order with Rick Smith and one of the Davis uh, boys. And when Patrick missed the finger roll, my dad dropped the glass that we were putting into the <laughs> and, and Matt, you should see that sound that you just made laughing? That was the sound he made. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, nah, uh, Paul, man, in, in all honesty, we appreciate you, you coming on. Uh, we could do this for hours, uh, but, you know, in, in respect to your time, man, uh, we, we won't do that. Uh, the book is The Knicks of the 90s. Uh, Paul, never, I, hey, you know, I, I text you, every once in a while on how great this book is after every little tidbit that I pick up. Uh, hopefully our listeners and our viewers will want to know these same tidbits that, that you and I text each other about um, and nothing but much success to you. Uh, the Knicks of the 90s, some great stocking stuffer. You can find it right. on Barnes & Noble. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, Paul, anywhere else that our listeners or viewers can Find it, please. Let us know now. Yeah, those are those are the main ones. But yeah, get it, get it, get it, get it, get it. Um, be great for the holidays, Paul. For me, thank you uh, for coming on and, and doing this with us. Hopefully, you had a good time. Uh, we always have a good time, right? so hopefully, it did that for you. 
Uh, Matt, anything you, you want to say, go for it, man. I just want to thank Paul again. This was uh, this was great. Um, you know, I had a few laughs, and you know, it was because um, I, like I said, I remember that was a big, big time for basketball. Obviously, in the '90s, and you know, growing up in New York, the Knicks were a big part of that. Um, even though I wasn't a fan, um, but it, they, uh, it was a, you know, the Knicks were a big deal in the '90s for basketball, and that's where I kind of was figuring out, you know, what direction I wanted to go. Uh, basketball wise so it was definitely um an influential time for me and I remember those those days fondly um so that you know this was great and uh good information and uh thank you for setting Marlon straight on his um you know <laughs> even though even though even though y'all conspired that y'all conspired against me and and that's a little bit as a, I know okay you know you both are Knicks fans and I'm not but Paul come on I went to I went to elementary school and middle school in Bayside. My daughters go to school in Bayside, so we're the Queens guys. We're supposed to stick That's together. That's right. That's right. You know I mean? Marlon's supposed to be on the outside looking in, but I guess you know for the sake of the show, it was about the Knicks. So the Nick the Nick fandom supersedes the uh, you know Queens being the superior borough to Brooklyn. You know, so I'll, I'll you know I'll uh, I won't take it personally this time. But no, it was great uh, having you on, and really appreciate you uh, stopping by Bleachers and Boards. Thanks, guys. You know, it's really, it really great to talk to you guys who, you know, obviously you know your basketball, so it was a pleasure. And I want to wish you both uh, best of luck this season. You know, first and foremost, I, have, I hope every, everybody and all your players and all the guys are safe and healthy, and uh, I hope you guys have a great year. Wow, thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. All right. Man, Take care, guys. You want to close this out, Matt, or you want me to yeah, no, thank no. Just wanted to uh, you know thank everyone for tuning in to another episode of Bleachers and Boards here on the Hoopheads Podcast Network. And uh, from Marlon Guild, I'm Matt Collier signing out. And everyone uh, have a great start to your holidays, and we'll see you on the next one. If you have an existing podcast or are looking to launch your own pod but aren't sure where to start, the team at My Podcast Manager can help. Our podcast team works behind the scenes so you can do what you do best. We'll help you launch your podcast, make it sound great, and free up your time for the more enjoyable parts of podcasting. If you're ready to put your podcast editing, production, and promotion on autopilot with a trusted team of podcasting professionals, visit MyPodcastManager.com to get started. Well, that's another episode of Bleachers and Boards brought to you by the Hoop Heads Podcast. Don't forget to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Bleachers and Boards. Until next time, see you soon.